The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are, week number... 58. Oh, 58. 58. We're into the second year, and uh, this is episode 58. That's exciting. It's not week 58. We skipped a week. No, it's very exciting. You know what? I think we have successfully caused waves out there i think so too and the way i know this i can always gauge whether you and i have done our jobs the week before is that the next week i see little things that people write on the chat to my chat agents at the center yes saying, oh my god i don't agree or oh my god i totally agree and just people want to just like roast me uh-huh. if they don't agree with us and um, so they chat they go on they, the website they, they, and they chat they chat but i think it's good because yep. if we're eliciting a response from the public then we're doing our jobs if we're just saying something that's kind of What's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of boring and basic, and it just kind of agrees with everybody. We're not doing what we're supposed to do, because we're supposed to ruffle feathers, cause waves, and incite a little bit of controversy, because drug addiction, drug abuse is a controversial subject. That's right. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks they're right, and everyone really wants to be right about their own opinion, and it's like... I'm not here to necessarily take sides with you, but it's just like we're here to just have a conversation about it. Right. And get both sides of it, and... um well, and we've said many times, and this was the thing when we were getting a lot of flack about dissing either, you know, Suboxone or Methadone and long-term use of it. And, you know, we want you to be drug-free. Yeah, I'm going to continue to diss Suboxone or Methadone. Yep. Not just because it's not a solution to drug addiction, but it's like you even took a medication and you're using it not for its intended purposes and saying that's treatment for addiction. That doesn't make sense to me. That's right. It's never going to make sense. That's right. And that kind of goes along with the guest we have on today. Correct? Yes. But I was just going to say that a couple weeks ago, I titled the one that we did um, alcohol versus marijuana Uh because we talked about that and um, huge amount of downloads, huge amount of downloads. And I didn't see any of the feedback because I typically don't go in and look at it, but I'm betting that there was a lot of controversy and communication back and forth on that. Oh, it it happens on my (laughs) blog. I did a blog article about, you know, the study that we talked about. There was a study done that actually called alcohol out as the main gateway over marijuana and oh does everybody have an opinion about that because they're really pr- the marijuana supporters want to say it's not a gateway it's never going to lead you to stronger drug use yada 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 and then you've got the people that have gone through addiction are like um hello it's absolutely a gateway and alcohol is absolutely a gateway too right because a lot of people most people when they start their journey into drug abuse and substance use they start with alcohol marijuana actually or nicotine yeah they don't walk those out the door and shoot up heroin no those are the three entry points and yeah. i always say that everything's a situation gateway i don't agree with the idea that you smoke weed and you're like you know what this weed's good but i really want to shoot some heroin it doesn't work like that right and the way it works is that you surround yourself with drug users eventually someone's going to have something different new for you to try and you might since you're already inebriated and so everyone out there just and i say this to kids because the people i have the hardest time getting through to about marijuana are like the teenagers who think well i'm just going to smoke weed and it's going to be totally fine and it's not going to uh, it's not going to lead to other things. I'm just going to smoke weed and relax after work. It's like having a glass of wine or a beer afterwards. And I sit there scratching my head, like, how am I going to get through to this? Right. And realistically, they're my most difficult uh, audience when it comes to this. But what I tell them is very, very simple. I work in a drug rehab. I've worked in a drug rehab for a very large amount of time. And I can tell you that three quarters of the people there, their first drug was marijuana. Exactly. And they didn't think that they were going to smoke weed and then go sh- end up shooting heroin. Right. However, you take that risk that it's possible. Right. 
you might go into it with every intention of like, I'm just going to smoke weed and that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And then one day you look in the mirror at your disheveled face. You haven't shaved in a while. You're dirty. You smell bad. You have track marks on your arm. You wonder, well, how did I get here? Well, it's the marijuana that started this whole process. And yep. so I try to just be really real with them and let them make the best decision for themselves that they can make. There you go. There you go. So we have a guest today. We do. And I'm, I'm really excited. We have David Aiden, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Center for the Study of Drug Addiction Policy, also known as CSDAP. David, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And thank you for coming into the studio. We do do some interviews via Skype, but the sound quality is not as good as actually having somebody sitting there right there in the microphone. So tell us about... The Center, I got to read it again, sorry, the Center for the Study of Drug Addiction Policy. What is that? What do you guys do? Um, what we do is, is well, let, let me give you a little bit of history about how we, how we came about. Perfect. Because um, that kind of explains what, what we do. Okay. It actually started about two or three years ago. A friend of mine was working in the area of drug rehabilitation. And, and we, we had a random conversation. It was actually a former business partner of mine from when I was, lived in Washington, D.C., and had not gone into, back into working on nonprofit kind of activities with drug rehabilitation. And one of the things that he said he had come across working in D.C. is this idea of medication-assisted treatment. You were just talking about it with Suboxone mm-hmm. and, and methadone, of course, right. is another one. And, but what, what he was seeing is, is that there was a policy movement towards identifying medication-assisted treatment, in other words, using drugs to treat drugs, as the de facto way to do it, as the, as the only, in, in fact, as the only way to do it. And one of the things that came out of that was a recognition that that was a, that was a real threat to existing drug rehabilitation facilities, particularly drug-free facilities. Right. And I know you, you work with Narconon, which is actually drug-free and is going for a drug-free product. I think we can talk about, uh, it's really important to talk about outcomes. I think we'll get there in, yep. uh, in discussions about outcomes. But it also is, it, there's also many other groups out there that believe that the end product of drug rehabilitation should be a person who's living drug-free. Right. So that, that, sparks, that sparks some interest. About two or three years later, uh, I was talking with a friend who does a lot of work in the area of mental health reform. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she said and was running into is that there was this trend to take drug rehabilitation and drug, prevent, drug addiction prevention, which had been separate for a long time, and putting it in with mental health and combining those two things. And that that's been a trend that's going on across the country. Um, in some way, we can talk about this, but in some ways, it just seems like a land grab. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a land grab on the part of mental health to include in, to include this area of drug rehabilitation, which has always been separate for a long time, and that this was a this was a problem she was running into because people were were now saying because of the opioid crisis, we need to fund mental health more, right? And and the problems that go that goes with that. So these two things kind of came together, and and. and discussions with this original friend of mine realized there wasn't anybody talking about these things. They weren't talking about the fact that there's this freight train going down the tracks very heavily that is going to affect every single drug-free group in the country one way or another, because mm-hmm. we're talking about regulations are going to be impacted, insurance is going to be... Con- this is what we were seeing two or three years ago. Right. Realized there was nobody talking about it and decided to found the center in order to be able to talk about these issues and bring them up. I think that's great. I I mean, it's huge. And I just see the whole psychiatric profession and the whole drug profession just really wanting to jump on this opioid crisis and see how much money they can make. I'm sorry, I'm going to call a spade a spade. So I'm glad you guys are talking about it and pointing that out. (laughs) 
Because the only people that are going to make money from the medically assisted treatment, medically, is that right? Medically assisted treatment programs are those who provide the medicines. Right. The drug companies. That's right. And how did we get into the opioid crisis that we have? Drug drug companies. companies. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you told me how it came about. So... The problem that we have today with opioids, and Jason and I have kind of talked about this, but I want to get your perspective. Is it something new? Is it brand new or? No, this is, uh, uh, this goes a little bit into sort of the, uh, kind of the history of how, not only how we ended up here, but also what the history of this has been in the U.S. And I think it's interesting. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Okay. But but if you go back, say about 150 years or so, the problem was opium. And it largely existed as a problem within Chinese immigration community, sort of escaped out of that, became a more general problem. Shortly after that, shortly after that or as that was happening, then morphine was derived from, from opium and was actually promoted as a cure for opium, opium and for alcohol. Seriously. So the original methadone was opium. Yes. Okay. Yes. But this is this is a pattern. This is a pattern that we're going to see that's going on for the last 150 years. So morphine was going to solve all the opium problems. Civil War came around. There's some, somewhere around 400,000, I think. I think it was about 400,000 people ended up being addicted because there, there were soldiers. It was it was obviously an improvement in terms of medical care for soldiers who were having amputations and stuff. I mean, there was a medical reason for using it, but. Assuming that it wasn't addictive was a fundamental and huge mistake. Many people became addicted. A little bit later after that, um, actually, heroin was, was derived. And um, th- this, was all, this was by a, a German company. Um, it became then itself a replacement for and a solution for morphine. Right. And it was promoted widely as um, this is, this is going to handle morphine addiction. And you, you guys have probably seen and you've probably talked about yep. the fact that there were some amazing ads of uh, using heroin in things like teething, like for kids, for kids who were teething. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. scary. Or, lau- or laudanum for a colicky baby. Yes. But what is laudanum? Is laudanum... It's an, op- it's opiate. It's an opiate. Okay. And a lot of kids, a lot of babies died from it's- overdoses as a result of taking laudanum because they're colicky, they're crying. And this was back in the day of patent medicine, like the 1910, like 1910, 1920s. And then, you know, you'd have parents constantly dosing the kid with laudanum and then the child would die. So is laudanum, is that like an opium derivative? Is that where it comes yeah. from? Yeah, it's a tonic that okay. had various different things along with morphine, stuff like that in it. So it was a very, very strong opiate, especially for a baby. That stuff would put, probably put you on your butt today. Um, it was, but that's also when cocaine was legal and sold in pharmacies. Heroin was sold in pharmacies, all that stuff. Okay, yes. so heroin was for teething babies. It was for teething babies. It was for okay. menstrual cramps. It was for pretty much um, anything. And for treating morphine and opium addiction. There was actually a, we don't have this up on the site yet, but there's a, I just came across an article um, really recent from the Smithsonian tracing the history of the marketing of these drugs. And it has some phenomenal, we'll put it up on the site, it'll be up in the next week or so, but it has some phenomenal pictures of ads of very happy looking babies with their mothers who are taking this stuff for their teething. And, and it also focuses on the fact that a lot of this addiction came about historically, not just from the tonics. The tonics was one thing. The patent medicines was one thing, but from doctors prescribing it and it being given out by doctors. Okay, so heroin was the, rep- was the panacea that was going to replace morphine. The next thing that came up is um, in, about, I think, about 1937, another German company developed uh, methadone. We didn't really... Co- 
get it in the States till about two decades as a, after World War II, and it was going to be now... The, the cure for heroin. The, the cure, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and was used that And way. on we go. And, and then, then Suboxone. And, and then now Kratom. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You make me speechless because my grandkids were just here, and the twins are 10 months, and the little girl woke up one morning with a fever and, you know, was te- obviously teething, you know. And I can just see me saying to her mother, oh, just try a little bit of heroin. No problem there. You can use that for teething. It worked for you when you were a baby. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. That's Un- unbelievable. I'm going to be interested to see those ads. When we see those ads on your website, I think that's going to be something for Jason and I to talk about. Of course, one of the things we've talked about is Purdue Pharma coming out in 1999 and saying that OxyContin wasn't addictive. Yes. And, and the doctors could feel free to prescribe it as much as they wanted. Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, one of the pharmaceutical companies that was selling heroin was Bayer. Yes. That's a, yeah, that was, like, a, that, was the, that was the company that brought it to market. It was Bayer, like Bayer aspirin. That's right. That's right. It, it, the, the, the interesting thing about, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things about that, obviously. But the, the, the fact that we've got a 150-year history of some new opioid replacing, I, in theory, the earlier one. And right. this in this sort of mythical search for an opioid that would have the pain-relieving qualities, but not the addictive qualities. There's, I've, seen, I've seen articles just within the last couple of weeks, a new initiative to find a new form of opium or opiate that will not be addictive, but will handle pain. So it's still going on yep. and money's still being invested yep. in it. Yep. Well, when the, when the president did his whole big study, the whole pre, the president's commission on, I don't have the name of it now, but they did their whole study and there were several different companies there who said, you know, we're researching to come up with alternatives to pain management that are not addictive. Now they, they didn't call them opioids, but they said, that's what we're researching is trying to find something we can give people that is going to handle their pain, but isn't addictive. I, I don't know what that means. I, right. I, it's, I, yeah, it's kind of hard to think with, but there you go. And they've been trying to find it for 150 exactly. years. And every new promise turns out... To be addictive. To be addictive. Exactly. And in most cases, actually, more addictive than the previous one. You know, I, I don't know what your experience is, Narcanon, locally, but I had been told that methadone is harder to get somebody off of than heroin. Methadone is the most vile withdrawal you'll ever see. And people that come off methadone versus heroin, which they just stayed on the heroin, came off that, because coming off methadone is... One, it's horrible as far as the amount of physical and emotional pain you go into, but it's also the amount of time um, until you're feeling better, the amount of time it lasts. And so, you know, where you could kick heroin in five to seven days, depending on how much methadone you're on, you could withdraw for a month. Yeah. I, I've heard I've heard then similar things about Suboxone, too, that it's... Nasty. In some sense, You've had people come worse. off of that, too? Well, the thing about Suboxone is a really long half-life, just like methadone. Yeah. And so it takes a long time for the drug to break down your system. So it's going to take you a long time to withdraw from it. You know, people that come in on healthy doses of Suboxone or methadone will be in our drug-free withdrawal for about a month. And when you say healthy, you mean large doses, right? When I say healthy <laughs> like, dose, no. It's not, such an oxymoron. There's nothing healthy about I got a healthy, it. I'm taking a healthy dose, dose of Suboxone, and everybody. Seeing, <laughs> yeah, and seeing people on large doses of Suboxone these days isn't like isn't a weird thing. I mean, we have people come in on 100, 150 milligrams. We send them to medical detox first to get brought down a little bit, and then they'll come to us for the rest of their withdrawal because the the detox from methadone is so, 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 so severe. It's unbelievable. And the other thing is we're seeing more people these days 
who methadone is their drug of choice. It wasn't like they got put on it to get off opiates. They started abusing methadone. Well, I think that's really important, too, that all of these drugs have made a transition into the black market. Yep. So I think it was in 2009. I may have the, the date wrong. There was something like 70,000. Actually, I think it was more than that, 700,000. Anyway, I'll have to I'll check the number. It's Again, it's on the site. A phenomenal number of emergency room um, sub, um, people going to the emergency room because of methadone being used for non-medical purposes. Mm-hmm. It, it, the same thing happened with Suboxone, too. And, and interestingly enough, Suboxone originally came out as a in pill form. It was supposed to be protected. My understanding is those protections were bypassed. Then the company came out and said, oh, let's do it as a film. The film will be less subject to being abused. But that, that made it really easy to sneak into prisons. They'd melt it, put it into pages, send a, send a book or a letter in. Somebody would rip off the corner of it, split it in four pieces, and pass it around. So every single one of those has been bypassed. Right. Uh, and the thing is, you can still... The films actually made it easier for Suboxone to be abused because I get tons of people that come in and say, yeah, they just melt it in water, suck it up in a syringe, and shoot it. And the mechanism that's supposed to cause you to go into withdrawal if you try to, to shoot it up doesn't work. Oh, it's okay. Like, it's um, it's unreal. I not and not, not to harp on this too much, but I interviewed a um a psychiatrist about two weeks or two or three weeks ago, who works at a clinic that does use suboxone, and she, there was some ambivalence in terms of her feelings about it. But after kind of a long discussion and talking through things, she 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 finally said that as I was talking about the difficulty of getting somebody off of Suboxone, that the last two milligrams to get them, even for her, the, worst. the last two milligrams to get them off is unbelievably hard. True. And she said that, and as a matter of fact, we do not talk about this. This is somebody who uses it, saying we don't talk about this enough when somebody starts using it, that this is going to be an effect or this is going to be a problem. But yep. I was, when you said that some people are on 150 milligrams, and then to get down to the two milligrams, and she said it's really tough to do that last... Yeah, well, bit. that's on methadone. Suboxone, usually people are coming in between 8 and 16 milligrams. Oh, okay. Um, so that's but all, still, the still, last two milligrams, nasty, it's like... It's a nasty witch. You know what's really creepy? I was just thinking about this. You were talking about a lot of these drugs like methadone and suboxone made it onto the black market. I was privy to some black market methadone at one point. And the pills are shaped like coffins. <laughs> oh, my God. And that's actually how they sell them to you. They say, how many coffins do you want? And you never realize, oh my god! Yeah, you never realize how That's messed so up creepy. that is. <laughs> you never really realize how messed up that is at the time. And I just thought about it, like oh, that's weird. But yeah, they're, they're ten milligram pills. They're shaped like little coffins. Wow. You know, I'm going to deviate for one second. We should do a podcast one week and talk about all of the street names for all of the drugs as an educational podcast for parents and loved ones yeah. to know what their kids are mm-hmm. talking about. I'm going to remember to do that. So. I think I think we know what medicated a tr- medication assisted treatment is. That's the use of methadone and suboxone and such things. Is it? Would you also classify the use of different psychiatric medications? Um, yes, though I haven't heard of that as much. Okay. In in, in most cases, in in most cases, medication assisted treatment refers to using something like suboxone or methadone in order to some sort of narcotic. Oh, okay. Narcotic. Okay. Because so, I because I think you said you were on psych drugs at one point. To treat my addiction. To treat your addiction. Yeah. Right. So that... Well, I mean, I put treat my addiction in quotations because... Treat your personality disorder that led you to addiction. And for those of you listening, I'm being really facetious when I say that because Jason didn't have a personality disorder. That was horse pucky. Okay. What, horse, horse pucky. Horse, horse pucky is my nice way of saying something. I got it. I you got you it. horse monkey. No, like, horse pucky. That's such a pucky. weird word. <laughs> horse pucky. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean... 
I don't know. I think, you know, the use of psychiatric drugs is about as useless as medication, medication as a treatment. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, you're still on more substances. And oftentimes people that go into regular traditional rehabs that get, that use mat and use psychiatric drugs end up on more drugs than they went in on. Yep. Yeah. And the, the, the definition that is commonly thought in terms of what medication-assisted treatment is, is that, it, it, that the word says it, that it's an assist, it's a medication-assist to treatment. Right. Now, uh, you know, we may, have, we may have debates about whether it's a good idea to use methadone or Suboxone at all, but let's just, take, let's just take the definition that's often out there, which is that it's an assist to get somebody through the withdrawals or to help them get through that so then they can have other services to help put their life back together and, and solve the real problem that ended up causing them to become an addict. Which might be a good idea if methadone and Suboxone were not in and of themselves addictive. Yes. And that's wherein the problem lies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because you are, in effect, trading one addiction for another addiction. Yes. And when people complain to us and say, Suboxone saved my life, you know, it's the best thing. Our communication on the podcast is, yeah, but can you stop? Can you stop Suboxone today? And be drug free, and I don't think we get any answers to that because I'm afraid the answer is probably no. Well, and and this is something that you got, that may not have come up yet, but we recently found out. I, I went to I went to the National Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Conference in Atlanta about four weeks ago. Wow! Uh, and spent and spent four days there. That's brave. It was interesting. I would have to take antacids or something every day or go, you know, look at puppies in the park or something. I don't know. That would be disgusting. I, anyway. I will say that by two, it started on Monday and by Tuesday at noon, I was pretty, uh, pretty despondent. Yeah. But um, we ended up finding some people and talking to people there that had a pretty clear idea of what needed to be done. But, th- but this was the, the most important thing that came out of it. Having... And we can, we can talk about who, these, who the leaders are, but I, I spoke directly with one of the three people in the country who is setting, effectively setting drug abuse policy or drug prevention policy. And um, she said very clearly that medication-assisted treatment is, a, is in transition, that that is not, it's a sort of a temporary thing. It isn't medication-assisted treatment. It's that medication is the treatment. And when I said... Okay, let's 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 take somebody who's on who's on uh, opioids, somebody who's 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 got an addiction problem, and shouldn't our preferred outcome be that the person becomes drug free as opposed to being on a, in some drug? And she interrupted me and said, "No, no, no, no. A person who's on Suboxone, a person who's on Methadone, is clean. Those drugs are the treatment for it, just as insulin would be the treatment for." somebody who's a diabetic, and in her presentations made it really clear that the, the counseling afterwards, eh, if they don't do the counseling, that's fine, because the medication is the treatment. So there's a redefinition of the term going on. on. And if, Wow. It, so it's getting worse. It is getting worse. It's getting wow. worse. It's getting wor- hence I mean, hence yeah. my being despondent by Tuesday. Heck noon. yeah. Wow. That's, Wow. I hit my head on the microphone. (laughs) Well, that's, and you know, what underlies that, and and one of the things that we have talked about over and over again, and what any addict that goes into Narconom will hear is, you do not have a disease. There is nothing wrong with you. 
you have made some bad choices. So they're approaching it that it's a disease because diabetes is in fact a disease and you have to take insulin for it or some other type of, do some other type of treatment. But addiction is not in fact a disease. So there's the lie that under, you know, that's underneath that. Because if you believe it's a disease, then you believe that someone always has to take something to treat the disease. That's yeah. right. And that's just scary. That's the easy way out. I'm sorry. That's just scary. That's I, right. I, I, <laughs> and when, yeah. you, when, when you start to say that abstinence, somebody can be considered to be abstinent when they're on methadone, when they're on suboxone, it's just a redefinition of words. Yes, I mean, it's, which it's, is very scary. Which is incredibly scary. Yeah. And what that means then for drug-free programs, what that means for insurance, what that means for somebody walking in, um, you know, we have the idea of somebody should be fully informed about treatment. Well, if somebody's walking in and a provider has the idea that this is the medication for it, how much are they going to time are they going to spend talking about the side effects of methadone? How much time are they going to spend talking about suboxone if this is just the treatment and you're going to be on it the rest of your life? Yeah, and the fact that you can't ever really get off of it. That's right. You and know? the fact that the drugs weren't designed to be on for the rest of your life. Right. Right. The drugs were not designed for that. They were not never initially indicated for that. It was to get you through detox. But now we're just prescribing it long term, and we don't know what the long term effects of these drugs are. We do know so far on methadone that you have major cases of uh, calcium being sucked out of the body to where your teeth fall out and you end up with osteoporosis. So just bear in mind that this woman that you talk to is getting kickbacks from drug companies. Oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> She's making money from drug companies. She may look you in the face and tell you flat out she's not, but she is. Yeah. Because uh, that's where the money is. Yes. And this, this woman, just to be clear about it, this wasn't just some random person who was voicing this opinion. This is the president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which sets policies and sets standards which can be adopted by states and others. So this, this she's a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. She's the head of ASAM, president mm-hmm. of ASAM currently. And this is, this is the level of policy. There's, as I mentioned, there's two other uh, people in, involved. One is the head of National Institute of Drug Abuse, also a psychiatrist, and the person at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration or Health Administration, also is a psychiatrist, and all three of them are saying essentially the same thing, that we that medication is the solution. The person who's in charge of um, National Institute of Drug Abuse, in her presentation, said if somebody comes into an emergency room and has an overdose, has overdosed on uh, opioids, that it would be tantamount to malpractice not to give them Suboxone or methadone or, or some medica- medication. Wow. So we have this picture forming of... That's unbelievable. Okay, so if she's not getting personal kickbacks, the organization is probably funded by drug companies. It's got to be because the only that's the only reason this would be pu- pushed so hard is because somebody wants to make money at it. Somebody is making money. Somebody's making a huge amount of money, and yes. it's the manufacturers of methadone and suboxone. This woman's now like my arch enemy, like public enemy number one. Oh, uh, there you, you go. Know, I was just thinking she's like the Lex Luthor to my Superman. <laughs> well, she and the other two, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just typical psychiatry because they have no, they have no cure for anything yeah. other than drugs or shock treatment or lobotomy. I mean, it's just, so these are basically chemical shock treatments and chemical lobotomies. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I, have a, I have a random question. Sorry, getting, getting off of that because it makes me really angry. Is suboxone and methadone, you might know this, are those treatments for cocaine addiction? No. What do you use to treat cocaine addiction? Uh, in my case, when I was in rehab, Adderall. 
Adderall. Okay. <laughs> that was a replacement drug I got, and my dad freaked. But Adderall is a stimulant. You Adderall's said a stimulant. Okay, it's an amph- so it's an amphetamine. It's what an do AD. you know? What is the treatment for that? Um, well, that's that's sort of interesting too, because right now this is this is another thing that I think it is incredibly confusing about the conversation, the national conversation about drug abuse, which is when it's talked about or when this lady, when this woman says this or, they, or they're talking about policy and the fact that we should be doing MAT, really the only MAT that exists in any kind of even developed form is for opioids. And they're talking about extreme cases of opioids. That never minds the fact that studies have shown that a vast majority of people get off drugs by themselves without treatment. That's a, a totally different issue that we could talk about. But... The fact of the matter is, is they're talking about drug addiction and the need to give medication as if it applied to everyone and every other drug. What we do know is that, and I saw this at the conference and had done some research on this earlier, that other drugs, other treatment drugs, other medication-assisted treatment drugs are in the pipeline with, by the drug companies for other drugs, including marijuana, cocaine, and these things. So... The picture that we've got here and the reason this debate is so important right now is because if we define the only way to treat drugs as using another drug, an opioid in this case, and that becomes the standard, we're setting up for, okay, now cocaine, now amphetamines, now marijuana, that the only way to treat it will be to use drugs. Wow. That is, you You are in a scary field there, <laughs> David. I'm just going to say that. Wait, this is like you're, scary you're stuff. With, you're in this with me, with him. You're I know, but I'm not going to listen to these people because <laughs> I, might, I might commit bodily harm. Okay. One of the questions you gave me, and I certainly can't answer this question, is what is the brain disease model of addiction? You've referred to it, and it's um, essentially the idea that uh, drug addiction is a brain oh, it's a disease. disease. Okay, All right. right, and and that has become sort of the the term used to describe it. the he- The head of National Institute of Drug Abuse says that because when someone takes drugs and we can see on scans that their brain changes, that it is a brain disease. I even went and looked today at the National Institute of Drug Abuse site to see if. There was any hint that if you have somebody stop taking drugs, does the supposed changes in the brain change and, and go back? I couldn't find anything to that. To that so they didn't point. bother to look, probably. Uh, didn't bother to look. They certainly didn't bother to say anything about it. Of course not. Right. Because then they can't push this whole thing. Yes. Oh, you made me think of a question and I forgot it, but that's all right. We'll keep talking and I'll remember it. Now, wh- one of the things that we found out, though, is that there's kind of an assumption and within, within the media and within certain scientific circles, they'll throw off things like everybody knows that addiction is a disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you guys have talked about it. Right. But, and, and that it's a brain disease and that's the way it goes. However, there's a really substantial um, group of academics, scholars, researchers, etc., who do not believe in the brain disease model of addiction and have been talking about it for some time. Now, they don't have as much of a voice as the proponents of it do, and the reasons for that are fairly obvious, including the fact that there's no money behind it. Whereas there is money behind the brain disease model because that feeds into that the only solution is a, is a drug solution for addiction. Well, I'm going to say to you, David, if you know these people, and if these people would like to come on the podcast and talk, I would be more than willing to interview them. Great. If not here in person, I can do it via Skype. But I would, I think we should give them a voice because that's what 
that's what Jason and I know, and those who work at Narconon and those who've come through the Narconon program know that addiction is not a disease. It's not a brain disease. It's not a physical disease. It's not a disease, period. So I understand that those guys don't have a voice because there's no money in it. But if any of them want to come on the podcast, please let them know to just contact me because I will schedule them in a heartbeat to talk I, about that. I, I, I will. And and the this group... It, more generally, there's a group called the Addiction Theory Network, which is really the kind of a, a, a group of somewhere between 90 and about 110 scholars from around the around the world who are involved in this and who have a who have a stated mission to try to counter the brain disease model of addiction. And they do a lot of they do a lot of writing about it. Studies are done about it. There are presentations about it. Um, so that certainly certainly progress is there, and there's certainly word getting out there. But the fact of the matter is, is they don't have the money behind them or the, or the money motivation behind them that the brain disease model of addiction side has. Right, because they have the drug companies behind them. And the exactly. drug, drug companies, are, you know, make huge amounts of money. Exactly. You know, and so that's where that happens. I know what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you if addiction is in the DSM. Do you know? Drug addiction, is it in the DSM? It's in various different forms. You would probably know this as well. But it's in, in the, what is it, opioid use disorder? Oh, okay. It's okay. Those kind of, those so kind of it things. is then drug addiction. addiction itself. That word's not in. No, there, but, but abuse disorder. Certain, this disorder. Substances of abuse are like opioid abuse disorder, alcohol abuse disorder. Gotta love psychiatry and how yeah. they just make up disorders. I had I had, uh, I had one kid come into uh, come into Narconon. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and I was going over some questions about if they've ever been treated psychiatrically, stuff like that. They're like, oh yeah, I'm really bad. I have um oppositional defiant disorder <laughs> i was like so what is that what, what does, does that, that mean, mean? <laughs> uh, and she, it was a girl and she said apparently it's a it's a it's a problem because when i was a kid i didn't like listening to my parents <laughs> i was like oh my god i'm gonna kill somebody why are they doing this to people Oh, it's insane. Psychiatry is the worst. I mean, we could spend like months and months talking about psychiatry because I had a young man I worked with and he had a heart condition. And so they prescribed antidepressants. And you go, huh? what does that have to do with that? I mean, if I had a heart condition, I might for the moment get a little bit depressed, but an antidepressant would not be a treatment for a heart condition. No. Anyway, don't get me going. No. So David, what would you like to leave us with or what kind of message would you like to give us? And, you know, I, I, I really thank you for being on today. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I, yeah, you are going right into the teeth of the monster there, David. Um. Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. I, I think one of the things that I came, believe it or not, came out of that conference, the Atlanta conference, realizing is, there's, is that there are really three things that I think are important to talk about. One is outcomes. Um, and, and that's what kind of outcomes, and I'm talking to, about having these conversations for, as families, as communities, as the, as the country as a whole, when we're talking about drug abuse, what's the outcome that we want? Do we want people who are on drugs the rest of their life, or do we want people who are drug-free? And, and it's important, I think, I think that leads right into the second thing, which is choice, mm -hmm. that it's really important for choice. There may be some people who decide that a life spent on methadone or suboxone, that's okay for them. That's what they want to do. Right. But the people who decide that what they want or the families who decide for their loved ones what they want is to be drug-free, they should have that option as well. Yes. And the problem is, one of the problems with the way that medication-assisted treatment is going is it's, it's 
closing down options. Right. It's saying that insurance will no longer pay for things. It's saying regulations will no longer define drug-free groups as actually doing drug rehabilitation. So this, the conversation about choice is inc- incredibly important. Right. And I think the third thing uh, that we can talk about and should be talking about is unintended consequences. In the, in the whole history of opioids, we saw there were these continual unintended consequences. Somebody found something, they thought it wasn't addictive, it turns out it is. It turns out that somebody who's on Suboxone has their teeth fall out after a period of time. There's unintended consequences. If you set it up so that a, a, a large percentage of doctors and communities are, are prescribing Suboxone, that means there's, there's more opioids going into communities. What are going to be the unintended consequences of that? Some of that will leak out into the, into the general public. That's right. It will be abused in some ways. This whole field of drug addiction policy is just littered with unintended consequences. And rushing into some solution, whatever that solution may be, without thinking about those is incredibly important. So outcomes, choice, and unintended consequences, I think those are inc- incredibly important and key to our conversation about what to do about drug abuse. I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. Jason would agree with you. I totally agree. Yep. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. And Jason? We'll keep doing it. You and I are going to be here next week, yeah. and we're going to talk about some of these things. And I'm just going to shout out to the Attorney General of the state of Florida, who has filed a lawsuit against some of the opioid manufacturers. Go, Attorney General Bondi. And we'll talk again next week, and I think we might even see if Attorney General Bondi might want to come back on the show, which would be great. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yep. Very nice. We'll talk again. Next week. Thanks again. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 